So I left home to come to Lamar last Sunday. And after leaving home to come to Lamar last Sunday, I was going to then fly on to Guatemala. And Guatemala is a country racked with poverty and violence where we drive around in blacked out vehicles in case we're carjacked or kidnapped. A country where children live in slums with gun-wielding gangbangers on most street corners and violence and death is common. And therefore people, my friends, my family, this church family, uh, you were praying for Katrina and I as we went to Guatemala because Guatemala is a bad country. But since I left my front porch last Sunday to come to Lamor and then travel on, there was a shooting at the Garlic Festival in Gilroy. Then on Wednesday, John texts me, reminding me to look at the news and seeing uh, the Navy pilot, Lieutenant Charles Walker, in that fatal training crash. And just a whole bunch of emotion as we're down in this country, which... We know people are praying for us and our safety down there, and and yet, and then on Thursday, I'm still looking at the news to see an update on where things were at with the Navy pilot, and I noticed that two people are ending up in Merced Hospital after them being shot, and then on Saturday morning, a young 22-year-old in Madeira is killed in gang violence. Here, Madeira, not Madeira somewhere else, but Madeira here. And then later on on Saturday morning, the tragic news of the people murdered in Walmart in El Paso, and then just this morning again in Dayton. And this happened since I left my porch last Sunday to go to a a dangerous country. And yet it's all happening in our state, in, in cities not far from here or in our country. It says much, and much of what it says isn't good. In the church, we need to go on our knees and we need to humble ourselves and pray and fast and call out to God to save this land. I'm reminded of you know, the words that we sang in one of the songs this morning about God, the Revelation song, uh, who was and is and is to come. And Uh, there is hope that he is still to come to heal our nation and to heal our land and to pull back from evil and hold it back. And we just pray that the Lord would come. It's that cry of Maranatha, even so come, Lord Jesus. And, And as that happens, may we as a church rise to be the hands and the feet and the voice of Jesus to those who are broken and hurting, to those who are disturbed and would think of doing evil and violence. May the church rise with the right message and the right disposition towards the evil that we see. And yet, you know, you have all these emotions that go through your mind. I mean, obviously, there's sharpened emotions, heightened emotions as we're in Guatemala and we're seeing and hearing and looking around in Guatemala and then we hear all that's happening here. And, and yet, amidst the sadness that we feel, life continues to move forward and we mourn and we have these emotions of sadness and 
At the same time, there's some new things to celebrate. And we have to do it together. You know, we have to have the sadness and the joy, the good and the bad. And uh, one of the things I want to announce this morning, that one of the things that's good to celebrate is that John Ecker's not here. <laughs> no, he with some of our worship team are leading worship in Porterville this morning as we partner with SVP, South Valley Porterville. And John took some of the team down there this morning to really encourage Seth and encourage the Christians in Porterville. And uh, that's a tremendous thing to see happen. And we just pray for Seth and the team there as they seek to see many lives come to know Christ in Porterville. And then I've got an exciting announcement to make to the church community. The appointment of two youth interns who will lead our youth ministries for the next several months. And what's exciting most about this is it's two of SVCC's finest young men. And we're excited about that. They're so Dorian Ecker and Joel Christensen are going to become our youth interns. And we're delighted that these... These two committed young men have stood up and said, we want to help people not that much younger than us, uh, but to know that they would come to know and to follow Christ. And so be excited for uh, Doreen and for Joel. Uh, pray for them. <laughs> oh my goodness, pray for them, okay? And uh, uh, Support them and in any way you can, volunteer, join their teams for middle school, for high school. Um, next week we'll have more details about when youth ministries will start and what it will look like. And uh, we're just excited for Tuesdays and Wednesday nights as they lead middle school and high school and uh, invest in the lives of so many young people. And uh, yeah. Uh, it's always a joy when it's young guys from within your own congregation who just feel the tug of God in their lives to say, we want to do something. And you can't really see them here just now because they're over-serving in children's ministry because they just want to give. And so we're just delighted. So, uh, yeah, some good news amongst the bad news, okay? Uh, uh, it's August. Like, like, where did the year go? Um, where did June and July go? It's good to be here. Uh, I didn't know if it was going to be thunderstorms hit me in Miami. Uh, Katrina was stuck. In, she was stuck in Guatemala. I was gone, okay? I was going on a different flight home because I couldn't fly with her any longer. And, uh, uh, but she's stuck in Guatemala. I then get stuck in Miami, and fortunately, we both made it back. Jose and Erin Armas uh, send their love from Guatemala. And in a couple of weeks, Katrina will share a little bit more about that. But at the heart of our time in Guatemala is friendship. Like we don't, we've often said this, we don't go to do, we go to be and just be friends. And it's why we travel to our global partners and uh, they often say, don't forget us. And it's the story of so many hurt people and leaders of organizations because people come and they promise so much, but then they seldom return. And it's very easy to forget people who live in poverty and and as much as they need funding, they long for friendship. Uh, that's why we called it the summer of friends. Because it's really what we're doing is we're raising friends for our friends in Guatemala or wherever. So uh, we, we just went to be friends and hang out and eat. We ate cake in McDonald's. Now you may think, what? You should see McDonald's in Guatemala City, okay? Isn't it spectacular? I, I had five pieces of cake and Katrina had seven and... You know, we put on 20 pounds between us and in Guatemala City, in McDonald's restaurant, Ronald McDonald was sitting outside in his chair. There's a cafe with fresh cakes and lattes and tea and hot chai and ay, ay, ay. 
that. One of the most, and we just sat there with Erin and talked, and one of the most famous research projects on friendship and relationship is what was called the Alameda County Studies. Um, it went on in Alameda County, <laughs> uh, up in the Bay Area, and it went on from 1965, great year, through until 1999, so just over 30 years. And this study, uh, uh, social scientists were tracking the lives of 7,000 people in those, in those years. And uh, this study found that the most isolated people the most isolated people who are not living in community, who have very few friends, are three times more likely to die early than those who have strong relational connections. Uh, and even the study went on to find out that people who have bad health habits, so maybe they smoke or they've got bad eating habits or you know they may wrestle with obesity or abuse alcohol, but people with poor health habits but have good social ties, relationships and friendships. They live significantly longer than those who have great individualistic health but are isolated. So to summarize, you know, to bring, uh, thesize it down to a small sentence, uh, the Alameda County study more or less said, it's better to eat Twinkies with good friends than to eat broccoli alone. Uh, scientifically true, okay? Uh, another scientific study was published in the journal of the AMA, the uh, American Medical Association, and they took 276 volunteers and they infected them with a virus that produces the common cold. And this study found that those people with strong emotional connections, people doing life in community with others, did four times better at fighting off illness than the people who didn't live in community and lived isolated lives. And the study went on to say that they were less susceptible to colds, they shed less virus, and they produced significantly less mucus than relationally unconnected people. And I'm not making this up, it's in the study. Less mucus. Okay? So in other words... Unfriendly people are snottier than friendly people, okay? It's just the facts, okay? So if you've just gone like that and sniffed, you're an unfriendly person, okay? Uh, there's an interesting book back in 1990s called The All Better Book, and it was more or less, it consists of tough questions that are asked by children and then answered by children, and one of the questions was this, with billions of people in the world, somebody should be able to figure out a system where no one is lonely. What do you suggest? And Kalani, who's only eight years old, she wrote, people should find lonely people and ask for their name and address. And then ask people who aren't lonely for their name and address. And when you have an even amount of each, assign lonely and not lonely people together in the newspaper. I thought, here's an eight-year-old with a better administrative gift than me, you know? Uh, Max, who was nine, wrote these words, make food, I thought this was brilliant, make food that talks to you when you eat it. For instance, it could say, how are you doing? Or what's happening to you? Or what's for supper? Oh no, that's me, okay? Uh, or Brian, aged, aged eight, he wrote, 
sing a song, stomp your feet, read a book. Sometimes I think no one loves me, so I do one of these. Loneliness, living isolated and by yourself. Interesting that none of the answers envisioned Facebook as a means of fixing loneliness because it doesn't. It often just highlights how lonely some people are. And then that got me thinking because when I think about it, the heartbeat of the church is that we are a community doing life together, transformed community doing a transformed life together. And I don't know what it is about you being a part of SVCC, but, you know, we're a group of people where we come and we want to be loved and give love. And we want to be known and to know. And we want to care for other people and give care. And we want to serve and be served and we want to celebrate and be celebrated. Uh, At the core of any local church is that we exist to be a place where people can belong. And that's very important because you see, people who walk into our churches these days, especially millennials, they're not asking, is it true? Truth is not the question of our culture. They're asking the question, can I belong here? And here's why millions don't come to church. Millions don't come because the church has got this order of how things work. And the order is like a holy trinity. First, you believe. Then, you behave. And only if you believe and behave can you ever belong. That's the church I grew up in. That's the church that many of you grew up in. I hope that's not this church. Because Jesus came along and Jesus flipped it and Jesus says, you can belong first, then believe, then become. And that's a whole radical different message than often church puts out there that society hears from the church and we need to change our paradigm. Or we face extinction. And sadly the national stats point more towards heading to extinction than to growth. Because less than 12% of Americans attend church. And in fact if you look at the the millennials in America. Only 3% of millennials participate in the life of a church. 3%. I interestingly read this week when I was in Guatemala actually. 22% of millennials say that they have no friends. And yet here is a church that could provide meaningful connection, authentic relationship, and many won't walk in here because they think here you have to believe before you behave, before you belong. And yet really, we're a group of diverse, weird people (laughs) existing together in community and in friendship, not in isolation, not in isolation. So here's a question just to get you thinking. And hey, I wrote this on a plane and we have to keep taking turns around thunderstorms so the message kind of goes this way as well this morning, okay? Uh, Here's a question. What have you done in the past month 
to help someone know that they belong here? Or have you more focused on telling people how to behave here? What visit have you made? What call have you given? What kind words have you written in a card and sent to someone? What shoulder have you provided? What barbecue have you shared? What lunch have you eaten together? What time have you given? What distance have you traveled to go beyond yourself and outwork you being true in friendship to someone else? Um, we're working on an initiative that uh, we'll relaunch in a many months' time or a few months' time. And I'm excited about being rooted in the faith and, and living out, not in here, but out there in the broken society that we live in where we can offer authentic relationships and watch for more details of that coming, okay? But if meaningful community is the norm of a Christian church, and it should be the norm, I've learned over my years as a Christian that there are some times in life where God or I remove myself from community and I kind of, I'm alone. Uh, regularly in my life, God, God either allows me or God guides me into a time of wilderness, like a spiritual desert. And there, in those moments of aloneness, he invites me to meet with him. And it might be that just now, you feel as though you're in something of a wilderness or a desert. Life is hard, life is difficult, you can't really find God in what's happening. You, you look left and right and you don't see anything changing. You long for some oasis, but it's not there. And you're in a desert and you feel alone and you feel empty and you feel lost and you feel wandering. You want me to do what? You want me to meet up with God in my desert? Let's open our Bibles to the story again of Elijah. And I've got this preach and one more preach to do on Elijah, okay? It won't be next week because next week I get to go to the wonderful city of Stockton. <laughs> it's, not, no, it's not the end of the world, but you can see it from there. Um, so Fred's preaching. But uh, we've been in the series about Elijah on and off for the last five weeks. We've got one more week to do in it, okay? Uh, it'll be in a couple of weeks' time. But uh, let's read this passage from 1 Kings chapter 19. If you haven't got a Bible, if you're a guest here this morning, then just let me read the scriptures to you, okay? And uh, uh, I'm going to change around a few words, which I think are better translations. So just hang in there if you're trying to follow along in your text, Okay. Uh, 1 Kings chapter 19. I'm going to read a little bit of what we read last week and then go on to a new part. Verse 3. Elijah was afraid. So he got up and fled for his life to Beersheba in Judah. He left his servant there while he went a day's journey into the desert. He went and he sat down under a shrub and asked the Lord to take his life. I've had enough. Now, O oh Lord, take my life. After all, I am no better than my ancestors. He stretched out and fell asleep under the shrub. All of a sudden, an angelic messenger touched him and said, Get up and eat. 
He looked and right there by his head was a cake baking on hot coals and a jug of water. He ate and drank and then slept some more. The Lord's angelic messenger came back again, touched him and said, get up and eat for otherwise you won't be able to make the journey. So he got up and ate and drank. That meal gave him the strength to travel 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. He went into the cave and spent the night. All of a sudden, the Lord spoke to him. Why are you here, Elijah? Elijah answered, I have been absolutely loyal to the Lord, the sovereign God, even though the Israelites have abandoned the agreement they made with you, torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left and now they want to take my life. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. Look, the Lord is ready to pass by. A very powerful wind went before the Lord, digging into the mountain and causing landslides. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the windstorm, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, there was a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. After the fire, there was the sound of silence. When Elijah heard it, he covered his face with his robe and went out and stood at the entrance to the cave. All of a sudden, a voice asked him, why are you here, Elijah? He answered, I have been absolutely loyal to the Lord, the sovereign God, even though the Israelites abandoned the agreements they made with you, torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left and now they want to take my life. And the Lord said to him, go the way you came and then head for the desert of Damascus. Go and anoint Haziel, king over Syria. You must anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And Elisha, son of Jathat from Abel-Maholah, to take your place as a prophet. Jehu will kill anyone who escapes Haziel's sword. And Elisha will kill anyone who escapes Jehu's sword. I still have left in Israel 7,000 followers who have not bowed their knees to Baal or kissed the images of him. Let's pause there. Elijah was in the wilderness. God allowed it, but it was Elijah's doing. And if you haven't been with me the last several weeks, let me remind you of the story so far. Ahab was the king of Israel. And he thought it would be good for political purposes to align himself with a neighboring country, Phoenicia, and then together they would be strong enough to stand against the other growing neighbor, Syria. Human reasoning drove Ahab and he ignored the truth that Israel had God on his side, which changes the odds dramatically. In that alliance with Phoenicia, Ahab also got a wife, the daughter of the Phoenician king, a lady that we know as Jezebel. Now, this was not only dumb, she was clearly forbidden by God, the central reason Jezebel didn't come alone. She came with her obsession for worshipping a pagan god called Baal. She also came with ambition. She wanted to turn Israel into people who no longer worshipped the true God, Yahweh, Jehovah, but worshipped her god, Baal. And as that was happening, high in the mountains, In a place called Tishbe, 
lived Elijah. As he sought to stay true and loyal to God, his heart began to race as he began to realize what God was wanting him to do. Confront Ahab. And so he did. Out of nowhere, Elijah turns up at the palace and he stands in front of Ahab and he declares, it's not going to rain again in Israel until I say so. And just in case you've misplaced my business card, my name is Elijah, which means Yahweh, Jehovah, is God. And it didn't rain. It didn't rain. And for three years, Elijah hides in a ravine where God provides food and water for those three years. And then, and then God moved him, and you want to do what? Go into Phoenicia. And out of the frying pan into the fire... <laughs> But he went and for two years he was looked after by a widow who always had enough flour to bake him a cake. And it seems that Elijah liked cakes because it's all over the story. <laughs> and then the big one, after a prompting in his heart as he prayed and worshipped, he had to have the showdown with Ahab and the prophets of Baal. And so 450 prophets of Baal stood on one mountain and he alone, the only prophet of Yahweh, stood on the other mountain. And on that Mount Carmel, the true God showed up and demonstrated himself in fire. And he consumed the offering of Elijah. And the people, they all turn and they worship God. And rain begins to fall for the first time in three years. What a victory! What a moment! And Elijah had thought it was now over. Yahweh was seen as the true God. And Baal had been shown to be nothing but a myth. And the people were returning to God. And the king Ahab had seen it with his first eyes. And, and the future looked bright. But Jezebel. She's not going to roll over dead. And Elijah's victory has only made her even more determined. And her anger and her obsession now focuses in on Elijah. I'm going to kill him. And Elijah ran. And the most startling words in the entire narrative of the prophet Elijah now spring off the page to us. Chapter 19, verse 3. Elijah was afraid. And he ran and he ran and he ran until he got himself lost in the desert. Alone, afraid, broken, despairing, half dead. And last week... We talked about how God showed up at his private pity party. And in true friendship, God offered him to eat a cake. <laughs> and as a friend, God reminded him that fear is what you were feeling, but faith is what you could be. And he told him about how we conquer fear by first renewing our faith because fear is only the displacement of faith. And now we come to where we're at today, okay? Notice next what Elijah does, verse 8. He walks for 40 days until he reaches a place called Horeb. 40. Numbers are intriguing in the scriptures, as such a study as numerology. And the number 40 in the scriptures is a figurative number. And it signifies a period of testing. A testing that involves waiting. And not just for one or two days, but for a long period of time, 40 days. 
like Moses was up Mount Sinai for 40 days, or Israel wandered through the desert trying to reach the promised land for 40 years. Jesus was in the wilderness, tempted for 40 days. Jonah prophesied that Nineveh would be overthrown in 40 days. So for Elijah, for 40 days, he was tested. And what was the test? Elijah, is your faith only a means to conquering your fear? Or are you really seeking me, God? Are you putting your faith in God just because of the things you'll get out of it? Good things like forgiveness and peace and and help when you need it. Or are you putting your faith in God because of who God is? Elijah, are you responding in faith because you know I can help you conquer your fear of Jezebel and your fear of the future and your fear of abandonment and your fear of failure and your fear of loneliness and your fear of? Or is your faith renewed in me not because of what I can do for the fear that you're feeling, but because of who you know I am. And Elijah walked and walked and walked and walked and walking with purpose, not aimlessly, he heads for a place, a sacred place, a holy place, a special place, a place he knows about called Horeb. Moses supposedly was meant to have stayed in the cave on Mount Horeb because Horeb's also known as Mount Sinai. And in the Hebrew, verse 9, you heard it when I read it, I didn't say a cave. In the Hebrew, in verse 9, it's the cave. This had legend attached to it. This had meaning and significance. This was for the pilgrim Elijah, a holy place where Moses and God communed. And Moses was the great, the first prophet. This was the most sacred spot that Elijah could imagine. And boy, did Elijah need a sacred spot. I could hear him say to God, 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 give me a little of what Moses experienced. Was it not Moses' words I used when I stood before Ahab all those years back? Was it not Moses and his boldness that's driven me to stand up for you? Meet me like you met Moses. Give me a little of what you gave Moses. Do for me what you did for Moses up this very mountain. <laughs> Time out. Where's your Horeb? You've heard me mention something like this here some weeks back. Where do you go when on your journey you desperately need to reconnect with God? Where'd you go? Perhaps your horror is not a place but a person. Someone you know who will show you the road back, the path to take the action that you need to begin. Wherever or whoever your horror is, if you find yourself in a place where you need to connect with God, make the journey, travel the miles, go the distance to your sacred place. 
in my Christian life, I've never known God to serve me spirituality on a silver platter. I've never known faith just to be handed, gift-wrapped and laid at the bottom of my bed when I wake up in the morning, whoa, there's more. I've never known the presence of God just to jump out at me over dinner. Through the New Testament, the writers and the witness of Scripture is that we have to hunger and thirst to those who keep asking, who keep seeking, who keep knocking. There is effort in this, determination in this, persistence in this. You don't have because you don't desire it enough. God, you could have touched Elijah way back when you gave him some food. You could have knocked on his door in Beersheba before he ditched his only friend and started this downward spiral. You could have intervened and saved him all the struggles and efforts and climbing and walking if you'd just given him a little bit more faith earlier on. But God doesn't normally choose that route. All I know from my own experience and the revelation of God in history, that is if you want to meet God, you've got to show him that you mean it. To those who seek him, they shall find. And we sing nice songs and we read a pleasant daily devotional and we go to our small groups and enjoy a prayer time and we attend a Bible study and it's lovely. But there is a huge difference, a huge difference between Christianity and encountering God. I remember reading about the monks of early Christianity, church fathers, the monks. And they go on hermitages to deal with their sins, pilgrimages of repentance. And those hermitages would last for two years or three years or five years. Alone in the desert, they were called the desert fathers. Alone in the desert, they would be repenting of their sins for two or three or five years. The abbot of the new Skicky monks up in upstate New York, modern day monastery, okay, some interesting writings. Uh, he was asked if he still allowed his monks to go on hermitages to deal with sin. His reply was, oh, no, 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 that's so distressing. The longest we allow our monks to go for is one year. One year? We evangelicals want it fixed on a Sunday morning, or maybe a weekend away with God. But one year to deal with a sin and to repent of it? (laughs) No, no way. Faith conquers fear. But true faith produces the ultimate fear. The fear of God. This is the beginning of wisdom. This is the great paradox of the Christian life. When last did you have a holy fear For the presence of God. Sometimes. Sometimes God scares the hell out of me. Literally. (laughs) Power up requires us to finish at 12.20 on the dot. So I've only got five more minutes. Uh, Okay. 
let's, let's, go up, let's go up the mountain as we end, okay? Let's get to the scene where he meets God, okay? The, the story, I've got to tell you a story. The story of the man, he's shopping in a supermarket and he doesn't need much, just a jar of coffee and a loaf of bread. And he's standing at the checkout line and behind him is a woman and this woman has got her shopping cart filled to overflowing with supplies for her and her children for the rest of the week, enough to feed them, you know? And as he steps up to, the, to, to have his kind of run check, check, checked out, uh, the shop assistant invites him to draw a number out of the bowl. And if you pull out the winning ticket, then all your items are free. And he asks, well, how many winning tickets? And she says, only one. And so he thinks, well, the bowl's pretty full. Uh, chances are slim, but what the heck? He tries his luck, okay? And would you know, he gets the winning ticket. And then he quickly realizes that he's only buying a jar of coffee and a loaf of bread. What a waste. But he's quick. He turns to the lady behind him, the one with the mountain of stuff in the shopping cart, and he proclaims, well, what do you know, honey? We won. We get all this for free. And then he winks, or she, she stares at him, and he kind of winks at her, and she fortunately gets it. And what a surprise, you know. And she steps aside, and she puts her arm into his and smiles, and they take off with the food all for free. Um, there are times when within my Christian experience in the treadmill of spirituality God sometimes reveals himself to me in ways that surprise me like I'm sometimes surprised at the capacity of his grace and really not sometimes I think always I'm surprised at the capacity of his grace you know like I needed grace yesterday <laughs> After the first service, I needed more grace. And I'm going to need more grace after this service because you just don't know the thought I had there, okay? <laughs> and, and sometimes I'm surprised at the gentleness of his rebuke. Sometimes it's the patience of his forgiveness. Sometimes it's the persistence of his calling. I think... Sometimes I'm surprised it's just the continued acceptance of my humanity. Surprised. Elijah is in the cave. Elijah is on the mountain. Don't overlook the writer's details linking this great place to the great Moses. And God invites, verse 11, God invites Elijah to come out and stand before him. And come out and let me show you who I am. Come out and encounter me, Elijah. And Elijah stood there on the side of the holy mountain outside the sacred cave. And a mighty windstorm hits the mountain so fierce that the rocks were torn loose. A landslide happened. But God was not in the wind. And after the wind came an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came fire, but God was not in the fire. And then came, and your Bible probably says a gentle whisper. It's better to say it. The word is the sound of silence. And God appeared to Elijah in the sound of silence. Why? On this very mountain, God appeared to Moses in the wind and the earthquake and the fire. This was how God had appeared to Moses several times. But this was not how God was going to appear to Elijah. Elijah, I did the wind, the earthquake, and the fire thing with Moses, but I'm not going to do that with you. I'm not going to come to you the way I came to your hero Moses. You're not him, Elijah. You're Elijah. 
unique in who you are, individual and special in the way I've made you. Don't ask me just to do what I did for someone before you. Don't ask me to replicate the past. Invite me to possess the present. Elijah, I'm not going to give you what I gave to Moses. I'll give you, Elijah, what I've prepared for you, Elijah. So often we assess our spirituality, our Christian life, in comparison to others before us or around us. So often we see what they have and we ask for the same. But God wants to reveal himself to you in a way that fits with you. Not in a way that fits for the person sitting next to you. But notice verse 10. God asks Elijah, what are you doing here? And out comes this self-pity, doom and gloom answer. And then God appears in the sound of silence. And immediately after he's appeared in the sound of silence, he asks him again, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah gives the same pathetic answer. And God remains resolutely silent to his groans and his pity. God is silent to his pity, but instead invites him, verse 15, to move forward in faith. You see, in the Christian life, God will seldom answer your complaints and moans in the way you want them answered. Rather, his more frequent answer will be to invite you to move forward with him. God moves, and it's always in a forward direction. God is moving on, and if you're choosing to stand still through fear or through pity, you're probably going to miss God. And Elijah now has a choice to make. God has shown up. He has made himself known to Elijah. But it wasn't in the way Elijah had hoped for. So Elijah's choice is, do I stay where I am? Or do I go where God says? So Hebrews 11 verse 6, talking of the Old Testament saints and the prophets, without faith... It is impossible to please God. Elijah, you can stay where you are or you can come where I'm going. What step of faith do you need to begin to make? What action do you need to take? What decisions have you been putting off? What choice have you been stalled between? God invites Elijah to choose Sit in a cave with the memories of Moses and the past or move forward with me. And let me pull this thing to a close. That same choice is before each of us this morning. In our individual lives and in the life of us as a body of Christ. Oh, I could preach that. Are you sitting here with memories of last year's VBA, of memories of what it used to be like when the previous pastor preached, of memories of what it used to be like in the past? Or are you sitting here today 
ready to move forward. Ready to move forward as a church into a new future. A future to reach people of Lamar and beyond to impact lives of people who are not like you or not like me. Are you ready for the new that God is going to do through new ways and new leaders? Hmm. One is the path of faith. The other is sitting with no faith, with fear, or with pity. And we have that choice to make. We have that choice to make. So I'm going to give you a few moments to make the choice. You may need to do this repeatedly over the next many months. But let's end our service a bit like what we did last week. For a few moments... Stay silent. And maybe in the sound of silence, God will witness to your soul something of the path he wants you to take. And when the silence is over, go rescue the children's workers from your children. (laughs) God bless and I'll see you in a couple of weeks' time, but let's have silence for a few moments.